This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 22, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. China is regularly viewed as an economic threat to the United States, but even if you accept the dubious notion that a strong Chinese economy won't help or even hurts the average American, there are reasons to believe that China's position is more vulnerable than is typically acknowledged. Charles Calamiris is a finance and economics professor at Columbia University. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last week. You see President Trump gushing over Mr. Xi, and you see uh, what looks like an attempt to cozy up to the Chinese and be very, uh, maybe very weak with respect to the Chinese. On the other hand, there are lots of alternative signals where you could say, for once, maybe Trump is uh, carrying a big stick and not speaking very loudly. In China, that's it's an interesting shift for him, and uh, some of the concessions the Chinese have been making on this trip weren't even things that were actively solicited by the administration, and so there's a, a possibility that the Trump administration is doing what I think they should do, which is believe that they have a strong bargaining position vis-a-vis the Chinese to try to really liberalize trade and get their um, geo geopolitical objectives vis-a-vis North Korea and the China Sea satisfied too. So my view is China's in a very vulnerable position right now relative to the U.S. and that we're holding a lot of pretty good cards. As the uh, Chinese economy has slowed, uh, what has been the official response uh, both from uh, a budgetary perspective and a monetary perspective? Well, It's been to issue debt or to permit or encourage vast amounts of debt to be issued for which the government has either an explicit or an implicit guarantee. In other words, when productivity is slow, and we saw this, we see this in a lot of different countries that have this kind of autocratic structure. Uh, For example, look at East Asia in the 1990s. Look at Korea, for example. Large manufacturing firms that were part of Korean chaebols in the late 80s and the early 90s were losing their profitability, what did those firms do? They borrowed more. Well, how could they? Because they were able to borrow more with the effective guarantee of the government on whoever was lending them the money. So that when you what you see is when productivity growth slows, as it did in East Asia, particularly in Korea in the late 80s and the early 90s, you can either respond to that by saying, oh, well, we have to Uh, change some businesses around, we have to uh, shutter some of these activities, impose some market discipline. Or you could say, oh, we just have to make sure that nobody loses their job and no company uh, closes down. And the way we do that is by inflating debt. So I would say the Chinese response over the last decade to the growth slowdown that's happening there is to not want to have to deal with the tough problems uh, and paper them over, literally, with debt paper. The problem with that is that if it's a long-term growth slowdown, as I think it assuredly is, and if you run up debt beyond a sustainable point, then you now have, you used to have one problem, which is a growth slowdown that you need to figure out how to make your economy more sustainably dynamic and efficient and technologically able to get back to a higher growth. You used to have that problem. You still have that problem. Now you have a second problem, which is you've built up an unsustainable amount of debt, and you're going to have to have an inflation. So how have 
there were two things here that 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 uh, I thought about while you were giving that answer. One of them is uh, that China has capital controls, and China has demographic controls as well. Yes. So how do those how do those play into a long term growth slowdown, and how what changes might uh, contribute to more dynamism in China? Well, the um, let, let me start with the capital controls piece. I mean, there's many different things I could say, but I'll just say one thing, which is <clears throat> the fact that there are capital controls, the most important piece of that is that people like me cannot bet against the value of the Chinese currency. So it's like the U.S. housing market in 2005. Uh, <laughs> sort of like that, <laughs> yes, because you can't short. I can't short your house, right? And neither can I really short the Chinese currency. Now, the Chinese do have an offshore currency. Uh, they have an offshore market for their currency, but they control the supply of currency that trades in that market. And whenever shorts start getting a little bit higher in that, they burn the shorts by withdrawing currency from that market, causing the, the exchange rate to temporarily appreciate in the offshore market. And now who? nobody with a brain wants to be shorting in that market, no matter what you think. So what's I think what's interesting is People have a kind of false sense of the invincibility of the Chinese, partly because the Chinese capital controls make it very hard for capital markets and for international, uh, internationally informed speculators to really uh, bring the unsustainable path to some sort of current comeuppance in the form of a speculative attack. You can't speculatively attack when the capital markets are closed. And I think that the most important thing that does is it feeds this mirage of invincibility. And even what's so striking to me is so many American business people who should know better think of the Chinese government as invincible. And they also look at Mr. Xi's crackdown, which he's currently doing, his consolidation of power and his crackdown within uh, the, the Communist Party and other things, they look at that as a source of his strength, which is very strange because it's exactly the opposite. It's what you do when your crony capitalist group starts having to split up a smaller pile of rents. It's a defensive move. It's a defensive move for a slowing economy. Uh, and it does not bode well for him. And he doesn't really have an answer to the question, what do I do about this, the one problem, growth slowdown, that's turned now into two problems, growth slowdown and uh, a, a excessive amount of debt that's gonna turn into an inflation. Um, and so he consolidates power. And then I think a lot of people in the business world they look at this as, oh, it's that invincible China again. Now they're even more invincible, which I think is so strange. And what I think it tells us is that in some very deep sense, Americans or Western business people don't even understand the roots of their own success. They don't understand that the reason why the West got rich and the reason why the West is able to sustain technological change is because of the favorable institutions for development that have emerged over the last 400 years. Um, China often says that it wants to adopt good institutions, but whenever you get into the clinches where you actually have to make a decision to devolve power, they won't do it. Yeah, developing those institutions requires uh, an understanding and appreciation and a desire or at least uh, not 
in opposition to a lot of the other things that those institutions bring. Exactly. You know, John Wallace at the University of Maryland uh, has been writing a lot about looking at historical episodes where elites actually choose to give up power. And you, you see this in the Western world, of course, throughout uh, the history of the last several hundred years. And usually the story is that because there's something in it for them, the pie gets bigger if they, if, even if their slice of the pie gets smaller. And so you have to do a fairly uh, detailed analysis of the interests of different groups to understand how these kinds of uh, devolutions of power occur. But when you do, I think uh, you don't end up with a, a view that it's going to happen in a, in a peaceful, gradual way in China. The best book about that, by the way, was uh, I think 2003, Ming Sin Pei's book, China's Trapped Transition. And the title really says it all, that even though they would say, oh, we know we have to do these things, we know we have to create these institutions, they, they pay lip service to it, but they're not willing to pay the price. So we view, I think in the West, we view uh, China's development as this extremely deliberate process. And in fact, when we go back to 1979 and the big, uh, the beginning of the big transition, then uh, it is commonly understood, I think, that well, look, this was a calculated decision that was made. But that's not really true. It was, it was, uh, it was chaotic. Oh, it's well, it's been an up and down process the whole way. Uh, I think that the, the other thing about that is it's one thing to decide when you have an economy of oh, more than a billion people, all, most, almost all of whom are living in a dirt poor situation. It's one thing to allow them to have market transactions which is, I think, the, the thing to say about the 70s and the 80s in China. Okay, we're going to let people have participate in market transactions. But it's another thing to say we're going to allow financial institutions to organize that are going to decide to withhold resources from certain parties. That's very different. So the financial institutional changes that are necessary for the next stage of financial of economic development in China are much more about allocating power away from elites. That is what they can't really do. They want to do it, but they can't. And that was really the crux of Ming Sin Pei's book, too, is understanding that, yeah, they're fine with the idea that we all want to get richer and to allow people to participate in market transactions, but then to create the possibility of concentrations of power that would be opposed to or that would question or that would act contrary to the interests of the um, 300 families who run China. That's not something that uh, they're so willing to do. Uh, the other part of an earlier question I asked was about demographic controls that China has placed. What impact does that have on their uh, potential for dynamism and growth down the road? Well, you know, in my view, of all the other decisions that, that the Chinese government made, which you could say, well, they were up against it. They had a hard choice to make. It was a difficult thing. And, you know, they're struggling with these almost impossible choices. The decision to enforce the one-child policy was just the most boneheaded move that just about any government has made in the last century. How they could have thought that this was a desirable thing to do to their country, I have no idea. Um, what it's doing right now, of course, as uh, Loretta Mester said in today's keynote address, it's made the uh, median age of somebody in China 37 years old. And she mentioned that uh, India is projected to overtake China in terms of uh, population 
pretty soon. It's exactly. growing much faster. And the median age in India is 27 years. So what's really interesting is what you've done with the one-child policy is you've created a pension disaster. And it's, it's looming right now um, because who's going to take care of these old people? So the government at a time— Well, it, it won't be your aunts and uncles because you won't have any. Exactly. Right? No, and— It won't and, be your nephews because you won't have any. And it adds to the inflationary pressure because in addition to the trillions of dollars worth of debt that have been accumulated— By the way, it's local currency. So there won't be a foreign exchange crisis as there was, let's say, in East Asia or Mexico based on hard currency debt. It's, it's local currency debt. But in addition to the trillions of dollars worth of local currency debt that the government is effectively guaranteeing, it has— also, the con the contingent future debt associated with having to deal with all those old people. With respect to China's slowdown and their efforts of dealing with that in part by issuing debt, having strong capital controls, maintaining their controls over the growth of the, the population to some extent, what opportunities does that deny with respect to, uh, say, like a Trans-Pacific Partnership? or allowing the widespread use of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in China? Well, it's a, it's a tough question because that's another, it sort of leads to what I see as another one of the paradoxes. Um, and the paradox is that from the standpoint of technological changes, let's say in its payment system, China is decades ahead of us in terms of just the physical facts of how you execute payments in China. Um, they've developed all sorts of uh, high-tech um, infrastructure in China that, that we don't uh, compete with. And the way that I would define that is, as Charles Lindblom, who was my professor way back in the 70s uh, when I was an undergraduate at Yale, he was a political scientist and economist, and he had this famous analogy that he, he gave that governments are like thumbs. They're really good for pushing. So if you want to create the biggest infrastructure of, of roads and airports that, you know, that you've ever seen, China can do that, right? Especially because they fund it with debt that they're guaranteeing. Hey, you can do anything you want. You can create all these technological diffusions rapidly, especially from a very underdeveloped beginning point. But thumbs don't create sustainable development. Thumbs only work with fingers, and the fingers are the market. And so government's good at pushing with the thumbs, but if it's not combined with real control coming from the marketplace, it doesn't really accomplish a sustainable development. So I look at China and say, yeah, they can accomplish things like you're alluding to maybe with technological diffusion very rapidly, creating a whole new payment system, creating a whole cities out of nothing overnight. Um, and that's a strength of a totalitarian government. But that doesn't lead to sustainable development. And if it did, the whole world would still be under totalitarian governments because they would be able to accomplish growth and they'd stay in power. But that's not what happens. Charles Calamiris is a finance and economics professor at Columbia University. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>